Thank you. So before I hand over the floor to you, I just want to uh, advertise that tomorrow we'll have another event also with the Professor Wan's leader and Heavy, because we want to use the opportunity when you're here. So it will be uh, a, a workshop on uh, refugee law and international criminal law. So everybody's welcome to attend that same link tomorrow. So having said that, very much welcome. Please, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to be here again. As I said, it was 2018, last time I was here. Then I got to talk about legal pluralism and international criminal law. And in a way, I think this, this lecture today is sort of the second part of, of the story, um, talking about universal jurisdiction and prosecution of international crimes, mainly in the EU, within uh, Europe. Um, it is, however, the lecture that I want to present today, it's the, the paper rather that I want to present today, it's a bit of a rough sketch. It's going to be a, my inaugural address, which I will give in uh, March next year in Tilburg. It will be my third inaugural address. Um, and it's also the kickoff of my ERC advanced grant, um, joined up justice, developing uh, a global justice system at the domestic level. That's the project. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to share some thoughts I have, um, but it's very much tentative. So I also very much look forward to the uh, Q&A also with the audience online to see, um, you know, what your ideas are, some of the things that I want to argue today. Um, so there is a general consensus, I think, that um, the future of ICL is domestic. It's often said, and the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Khan, in an interview with um, Council magazine last year, um, emphasised that when he said that justice is best done at home, uh, the best place for justice is national courts by national judges with national authorities who know the country very well. And the ICC is not the default. The court is a last resort. And he's actually been repeating that uh, also in the context of Ukraine. So, yeah, since the establishment of the ICC in 2002, domestic courts have been more active in prosecuting international crimes. Signing up to the ICC is very much, um, you know, signing up to complementarity means accepting the responsibility to try perpetrators uh, of international crimes at home. And an important vehicle for that is, of course, universal jurisdiction. Um, it enables prosecution or extradition of international crimes committed by non-nationals outside a state's territorial jurisdiction. Admittedly, a number of treaties already had um, universal jurisdiction clauses, torture convention, um, the Geneva Conventions, and also more recent uh, Convention on Enforced Disappearances. So states already have the obligation, but with the ICC and the setup of an international criminal justice system since the 1990s, there's been much more of a momentum in doing this stuff also domestically. And that maybe brings me to my first slide. There we go. Um, empirical research by Maximo Langer and Mackenzie Eason has shown that the practice of exercising universal jurisdiction has expanded over the years. Um, Maximo Langer, who has the most complete database on universal jurisdiction cases, he has reported over a thousand cases or rather criminal complaints filed on the basis of universal jurisdiction between the Eichmann case in 1961, 
and June 2010. And this was mostly related to Nazi crimes. He updated his database um, between 2016 and 2018, and he found, together with Eason, he was then working with his PhD students on the database, that another 911 complaints could be added, 614 of which were all initiated between uh, July 2010 and December 2017, so a real spur in UJ um, prosecutions or complaints rather than investigations. And this rise will have continued. I mean, this is from an article that he wrote in 2019. I'm sure the graph now looks um, even more impressive in that, you know, it will be higher and higher because of what's happened um, in, in terms of um, prosecutions for Syria crimes in Germany mainly. Um, the, this figure shows the completed cases. Um, as I said, many in Europe, Sweden figures prominently. And interesting is that the amendments to universal jurisdiction statutes in Belgium and Spain, in Belgium in 2003 and in Spain twice in 2009 and 2014, where they were narrowed, you see that there is also less of you know, less happening in terms of um, completed prosecutions or completed cases. And certainly with regard to investigations, you see a drop in complaints there. Yet, and this is the interesting thing that Maximo Langer and Mackenzie Houston argue in this article, is that there may have been the perception in the early 2000s that after the sort of reining in of these very broad universal jurisdiction clauses in Belgium and Spain, that there's sort of universal jurisdiction in decline, well, he actually shows that that's not the case at all. There's been a quiet expansion of prosecuting international crimes over the years, and uh, he's mapping that in his research. Um, and of course, you know, since the war in Syria, that has only exacerbated. And many people from also Iraq and Syria have found refuge in Europe, which explains why many of the cases actually arise in Europe. And um, an interesting report is, um, is the one by Trial International. They map every year the universal jurisdiction cases. And their most recent report um, does show that the majority of international crimes prosecution are in Europe um, because of Syria and Iraq links. And they show there were 15 convictions secured over the last few years. I think 2021 was the measuring point. Um, and also three core crimes. Majority of charges relate to crimes against humanity, 66 charges, uh, followed by war crimes, 34, and then genocide, 25. Um, so the overview of these ongoing universal jurisdiction cases compiled by Trial International is interesting because it shows a few things. It shows, for example, that France has become very active in prosecuting international crimes. They had 23 cases um, documented last year where there was something happening, sometimes very early investigations, but also um, cases in the very later stages of proceedings towards um, appeal. Aside from prosecuting individuals, France also prosecutes companies, and I just learned about this case in Sweden, which is an interesting one, the oil case. France has also been active, and it has also uh, prosecuted the executives of these companies. Three companies, uh, and you have this um, Lafarge, the cement company, 
um, they have they've been prosecuted or for complicity in crimes against humanity, legal so war crimes, because they basically kept their business going in Syria, and in order to, to keep going, they paid IS millions of dollars uh, apparently, and that has now led to these charges. And the interesting thing is also with these cases and in NGO involvement. In this case of um, the cement company, it's the European Centre for Constitutional and Human Rights, very active in strategic litigation with these international crimes prosecutions. And um, they have uh, issued the complaint as a civil party together with 11 former Syrian employees of this company. Um, France has also been active uh, in prosecuting Rwandans. While they, for a long time, were very inactive, <clears throat> because they had very close ties to um, the Hutu government at the time. And as you know, a lot of um, Hutus fled to France after the genocide, and they are now starting to prosecute these people. Um, now, many of the domestic prosecutions of international crimes are conducted in Sweden and Germany. And this is, of course, no coincidence. Um, both countries have large migrant communities from Syria and Iraq and broad universal jurisdiction clauses. Um, Germany and Sweden, if I'm correct, together with Norway, have the pure universal jurisdiction clause where um, you can prosecute without a direct link. But I stand correctly if I'm wrong. And um, it has led indeed in this activity that you also see in the graph. Uh, Germany is interesting for its prosecutorial strategy. Despite wide discretion on the part of the prosecutor not to investigate where a suspect is not in Germany, uh, it has adopted a novel and ambitious strategy of conducting broad preliminary investigations in Syria and Libya. And these so-called structural investigations are not directly related to a concrete suspect, and they allow valuable information to be gathered in future cases. So what they do, prosecutors, is already trying to map the structure of, for example, the Syrian intelligence um, organization. And without having any concrete suspicion in regard to a suspect, they can already go out and assemble evidence, uh, talk to witnesses, etc. cetera. Uh, it has certainly placed Germany at the forefront of universal jurisdiction practice. And I recommend greatly a piece by Kalik and Croker in the Journal of International Criminal Justice in 2018, where they explain this strategy. Um, this strategy of investigating with an eye to future cases, um, mapping structures of a regime and identifying future suspects in key positions would not be possible, for example, in my own country, in the Netherlands, where um, the police can only investigate a concrete case when the suspect is on the territory of the Netherlands, it's actually physically in the Netherlands. So even if we know that someone is coming to the Netherlands, there's not a lot of room for police to um, already start investigations before the person is in the Netherlands. And that really hampers um, investigating officers. The trials look very different in, in different countries. I mean, Dutch trials are largely conducted on paper. Uh, hardly any witnesses uh, testify in person, while dozens of uh, witnesses are heard in French and German cases. I don't know how it is in Sweden. Um, Courts may hear cases intermittently, so a few days then and then stop a few days later, as they do in Germany and the Netherlands. France tends to go for the sort of whole 
continuous hearings. And that does mean that these cases take a long time. Um, COVID has not helped. Some of these cases, I think, have been running for three years, maybe even longer. Um, and we have to bear in mind also that some of the national arrangements that we use for ordinary criminal, ordinary crimes rather, so procedural arrangements, they don't always work, these international crimes. And, and I think in particular of um, jury trials. So we had the trial of Agnes Taylor in the UK, in London, who was prosecuted for, um, for torture charges. And uh, there was a jury trial. And um, I mean, people, I've, I've not attended it, but I know the people who have, and they said it was just excruciating and difficult to see the expert evidence uh, being um, presented to the jury all around the context of the conflict, um, the history of the conflict, and it was so cumbersome and difficult to get this out to the delay jury and um, that you wonder if this is the best way of going about it. And for that same reason, in Belgium, um, there's been a real delay in prosecuting um, international findings. Also, they have to use a season uh, jury to deal with these cases. And I've spoken to prosecutors in Brussels and they say this is the reason for delaying these proceedings if we're actually not even wanting to start. Um, so interesting in this all is the role of NGOs, of human rights NGOs. I think I already alluded to some of this, uh, to the ECCHR. They are instrumental in bringing these cases and um, they support the parties and the victims. They also are the experts in international criminal law. And um, for example, when sexual violence was qualified and charged as a standalone crime in the case against Anwar, the Syrian Anwar in Koblenz in Germany, um, it was the ECCHR that intervened together with counsel for the victims to ensure that these charges were requalified, recharacterized as crimes against humanity. And, um, and this is important, first of all, because Sexual violence is often used as a weapon of war and um, failing to encompass strategies and use of sexual violence and its widespread or systematic nature fails to capture the essence of the wrongdoing. So it's good that we have, you know, experts on the side uh, intervening every now and again. Um, and moreover, of course, as a standalone crime, and this is just aside from the Anwar case, just in general, general, as crimes against humanity and war crimes, they will, of course, also be more likely to have extraterritorial jurisdiction. So it's easier for prosecutors to uh, make sure that um, these cases can actually go before domestic courts. So the picture on the ground, I hope I've, I've sketched a bit of it, is um, varied, it's mixed with universal jurisdiction in action, uh, things happening at different speeds. Um, but um, definitely an increase in activity and also a very much a common goal of ending impunity. The picture of different practices um, is a little bit more diffuse when we talk about foreign fighters, which is also a phenomenon that um, we've experienced in the in Europe mainly. Is it not working? No, see you. Try again. Yeah, there we go. Um, about 30,000 foreign fighters have, uh, from 100 countries, travelled to Syria uh, in order to join groups. 
such as uh, Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIS. Um, they engage in civil conflict there and they have engaged in wrongdoing, in war crimes and crimes against humanity, some genocide. The total number of um, men, women and children that have traveled from Western Europe to Syria and Iraq has been estimated around 5,000 and around 30% of them have now come back. They have returned to uh, Europe and um, are often regarded as a security risks, uh, risk and some of them are indeed prosecuted in, in domestic courts. Now there is a complex relationship between IHL on the one hand and counter-terrorism counter criminal law on the other hand. Um, foreign fighters have joined what we call so-called um, dual nature groups, um, groups that can at the same time be qualified as a non-state armed group involved in a non-international armed conflict and a terrorist organization. And both IHL and counter-terrorism legislation may be relevant when assessing the criminal nature of their conduct. In a recent report on cumulative charging, prosecuting international crimes and terrorism-related offences um, under those categories, terrorism and war crimes, Eurojust observes that initially war fighters mostly um, brought to justice under counter-terrorism legislation. And this very much at the expense of IHL war crimes, mainly because terrorism charges are just easier to prove. I mean, preparatory, at least in the Netherlands, it has certainly been the case that uh, prosecutors have favoured those over IHL uh, because preparatory acts to commit terrorism does not require that much. And same with membership of a terrorist organisation, as long as there is clear understanding that they are designated as such, membership is not that problematic. Um, more recently, however, different member states have prosecuted foreign fighters cumulatively for terrorism offences and for core international crimes. Analysis of national practice shows accumulation of charges for membership in a terrorist organisation and war crimes of inhumane treatment uh, of dead persons, pillage, enlisting child soldiers, murder, uh, as a crime against humanity and murder as a, uh, an act of genocide. And we see this particularly in the Syrian cases um, where those cases were investigated in France and in Germany, very often you will see both charges, member of a terrorist organization and complicit or perpetrator of war crimes, crimes against humanity. Um, interesting also here is that the French Specialised Unit for Prosecution of Core International Crimes is um, integrated now in the newly um, office set up in 2019, uh, French National Anti-Terrorist Prosecution Office. So they are integrated, those who are experts in terrorism and those who deal with international war crimes. Um, some states have not yet criminalized the offense of membership in a terrorist organization. I believe that's Sweden and Finland. Uh, is there legislation pending? Maybe we can talk about it later. I think there is, right? I'd like to hear more about that. In Belgium, it is not possible to prosecute terrorism and war crimes cumulatively because the Belgian Criminal Code contains an exclusion clause in Article 141 bis, which determines that the provisions relating to terrorist offenses cannot be applied to the activities of the parties to an international or an international armed conflict. So they're mutually exclusive. 
NGOs argue against charging for terrorism um, when it concerns mass atrocities. First, because there's no single agreed upon international definition of terrorism. And secondly, victims have a less prominent role in these proceedings. Terrorism is an attack on the state and not on an individual. The lack of consensus on the definition of terrorism has another oops, more insidious um, consequence. It can get states into a right model of double standards. Um, the charge of membership requires the branding, the designation of the organization as terrorist. Uh, the charge of membership, sorry, and that uh, does include some of these organizations, um, some argue have noble causes. And um, here we see a real disparity in prosecution practice across Europe. Um, France, for example, does not require the YPG, Cordist organization that fights against uh, Assad's regime, um, does not regard it as a terrorist organization, while Germany does. Um, and it regards its members as a security threat. The Netherlands, Netherlands controversially, decided against prosecuting a Dutch national who had fought alongside YPG against ISIS and was allegedly engaged in killing civilians. Um, initially, there was an investigation, then they dropped it because they felt that he had a valid um, justification of self-defense. And eventually they dropped, it, dropped the whole thing because of lack of evidence, but it was very controversial. Um, and it's a tricky topic. I can't, can't follow it here, but there's a great piece out there by Julia Guineus, um, colleague of those who do ICL, on um, the sort of legal limbo um, between counter-terrorism legislation and um, international crimes legislation, and these, these organizations that are regarded as noble in some countries and others not. Um, other authors that really write about foreign fighters and great stuff out there, I think by um, Paulusen and Koken and Mira, these are all people who write about the foreign fighters phenomenon. Anyway, it's, um, it points to the disparity in countries and they really states do not fall on the same side, right, wrong, when it comes to designating certain, certain organisations as terrorists. And this impacts on the right to equality before the law. Talk more about that. So, um, the domestic tilt or the paradigm shift from international to national has also contributed to the increase of refugee exclusion. And I'm aware that we'll be talking much more about it tomorrow, but I cannot resist, um, heavy to, to say some words about this now. So, the 1951 Refugee Convention allows in Article 1F for exclusion from refugee status for those who have allegedly committed international crimes. Um, at the time when the convention was drafted, the memory of the trials of major war criminals of Nuremberg was very fresh in the mind of those who drafted the convention. Um, there was agreement that um, war criminals should not be prosecuted, as sorry, should not be protected, and should be prosecuted. Article F contains three clauses, to that end, and the one that's applied most frequently is 1FA, which hopefully I can show you now. Mark, I need your help. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. 
So this clause deals with war crimes, crimes against humanity, and this includes genocide and crimes against peace. Again, it's very much mapped onto the Nuremberg Statute. Uh, the rationale of exclusion is to maintain integrity of the Refugee Convention by excluding those who are undeserving of protection and to ensure that those who've committed grave crimes can be, um, cannot escape prosecution. Yet, while exclusion files are sent through sectorial <laughs> services, so what happens generally is that people from Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan come into this mainly European countries, they are heard by immigration authorities, up, oh, you were a member of the Ba'ath Party, you are excluded under 1FA, and then their file will be sent through to the prosecutor's office, at least that's how it happens in the Netherlands. But hardly ever do prosecutions follow. Um, very often because Dutch courts either lack jurisdiction or because prosecutors um, refrain from prosecutions for policy reasons, lack of resources, lack of evidence. Um, people are not that high up the perpetrator's ladder, as it were, not that important. So they largely fall off the radar. And um, a similar situation exists in a number of Western states. So um, a considerable number of people are excluded but they are not prosecuted and they cannot be sent back to the countries where they've come from because human rights obligations of the state of refuge pose an obstacle to sending them back to their country because they do face a risk of ill treatment or torture. And they end up in this legal limbo with no right to reside or work and rely on support of family and civil society. Principles developed in the context of, in the criminal law context, figure prominently in these uh, exclusion assessments. And this is appropriate because the entire evaluation is based on uh, determining whether a claimant has committed a crime or not, or whether he's therefore eligible for protection. There is, however, a real problem with that connection between international um, refugee law and international criminal law. It really is a mismatch. Um, the two are areas of law that are functionally different. Uh, they employ different legal criteria for determining who is deserving of prosecution punishment and who is undeserving of refugee protection. This means that people who have been acquitted by an international tribunal for assistance or who have never served their sentence uh, for any of these excludable crimes, they may still not be eligible for refugee protection. The problem is best illustrated by the situation of former accused of the Rwanda Tribunal, um, who I have here on a slide. Thank you. Um, so up until recently, a number of um, people, this is the group that I'm, I'm referring to, resided for over a decade in a safe house in Arusha, in Tanzania. Uh, they, by the way, they're no longer there. They've been deported to Niger and they've disappeared off the radar. Some councils still are in touch with them, but um, they could not leave Arusha um, and join their families, most of whom had fled to uh, Belgium and Canada, some of them, um, because those countries basically did not want them. They excluded them because they validly do so because of that exclusion clause, despite the fact that they had either served a sentence or they had been acquitted. And, um, it's a real problem. Um, 
And why is that, why the mismatch of, of thresholds, I and mean, you'll talk more about that tomorrow, Heavy, I know, but just, just a shot across the bow because not everyone will be there tomorrow. Um, the clause in 1FA reads that there are serious reasons for considering someone has committed crimes, whereas, of course, the criminal law standard is beyond reasonable doubt. So the serious reasons for considering is lower. So even if you've been acquitted on the basis of beyond reasonable doubt, you are still sort of held dangerous and undeserving under the clause of 1FA. So no one wants these people. That's basically what it comes down to. They are regarded as hostus humanus, enemies of mankind, unwanted and undesirable individuals. Um, and I think it's appalling that we have a system of justice that does not deal with this problem. So, um, and I'll leave the rest of the debate for tomorrow. Much more than we can talk about. So the immigration entry point um, does not always lead to a criminal case. That's basically the point I've tried to make here. And this required me to, me to talk about um, the two models that are used to distinguish different prosecutorial strategies in domestic ICL enforcement. The safe haven model versus the global enforcement model. And then we come to the question, why prosecute international crimes? Um, so in endorsing views of other scholars, Maxima um, Langer, Axel Mitowska, Karl Kroker, I agree that there are indeed two competing views in the history of universal jurisdiction, uh, two concepts on the state's role as either global enforcer or no safe haven. An illustration of the global enforcer approach is the domestic implementation of the Rome Statute, accompanied by the creation of war crimes units across Europe and many of the other states that have signed up to the Rome Statute. Um, an example of the no safe haven model is the one just discussed around exclusion. And that no safe haven model uh, can be traced back actually to the programs set up in the 1980s in Canada, UK, and Australia to track down and deny safe haven to Nazi um, criminals and collaborators. And the practices in the US and Canada showed that the most successful route to stop these war criminals from enjoying a safe haven was through immigration and nationality law, and rather than through criminal law. In US and Canada, this model still dominates. US authorities, for instance, they take a rather unique approach uh, in that they focus on immigration fraud when confronted with suspects of international crimes. Canada, on the other hand, focuses on deportation. And with regard to the latter, I've argued that this is a violation of Canada's obligation under the ICC statute. The Canadian program operates on the premise, does it quite openly, that prosecution is costly and that other immigration matter measures uh, should, and that immigration measures should be preferred, such as preventing people obtaining citizenship, revoking citizenship, and removal of individuals. The question arises, how does that square with um, its obligation under the statute of the ICC, uh, which reads in the preamble, that um, the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole must not go unpunished, and that, bold letters, their effective prosecution must be ensured by taking measures at the national level. The Netherlands, it pains me to say, operates in a similar no safe haven mode. Um, Martin Boerhuis and Joris van Wijk 
former colleagues from the Free University, with whom I'm also working on this project, um, in an upcoming uh, publication, they point to the toolbox that Dutch authorities have developed. They have four key areas um, that they use to deal with um, persons who um, allegedly committed international crimes. Criminal law, but that's actually the one they don't use that often. Extradition law, mainly moment to Rwanda, uh, immigration refugee law, exclusion, and nationality law, withdrawal citizenship. This contrasts very much with the German approach, which I just alluded to earlier, structural investigations and prosecutions, which to my mind is the policy which is required for all ICC member states, global enforcers of the system of international criminal justice at the domestic level. Now we move to the question about who to prosecute? Yay. Um, <laughs> it's all my own. Rob Cryer, who sadly is no longer with us, but whose work still inspires us, um, has done a lot of research on selectivity in international criminal law. And he uses Michael Bota's distinction of safe and unsafe law enforcement mechanisms to discuss a state's approach to judicial discretion and he calls that selectivity by stealth. So an international court or tribunal is considered unsafe when it's likely that it will exert jurisdiction over a state's national, say, American servicemen or UK servicemen. In such situations, Cryer argues, there is a keen interest on the part of states, US, UK, to limit judicial discretion, and he refers then to the comprehensive codification of the ICC statute, trying to limit the discretion of judges as much as possible. Um, and also the fact that there are defences in the statute for the first time, and that also points, I think, to that sort of um, selectivity by stealth. And that contrasts, of course, to the very loosely drafted adult tribunal statutes, which gave judges a lot of room for manoeuvre, and of course, that was all with regard to non-nationals of powerful states. There is a safe, unsafe element to domestic proceedings as well. Um, selectivity, ratione persone, impacting upon prosecutorial discretion surfaces when it comes to universal jurisdiction cases. And I discussed one blatant example, there are more, but I have to discuss this one because I've been so upset over it. The UK uh, Overseas Operations Bill, I'm sure some of you have heard about it. In response to um, um, fraudulent legal claims put to the Iraq historic allegations team I had at the time. Um, false because they were put forward by um, this lawyer, Phil Shine, who just wanted to make a lot of money. There was backlash to that. The Conservative government in the UK drew up a bill to protect troops um, that are served overseas against these, um, these claims. According to Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, still in place, one of the few, <laughs> and Minister for Defence, uh, sorry, uh, Minister for Veterans, John Mercer. They proposed this bill which would protect veterans against um, repeated reinvestigations and that they will deal, this bill will deal with the threat of prosecution for alleged historical, for alleged historical offences many years after the event. The bill, however, goes further than granting veterans certainty. It makes it virtually impossible to prosecute torture and war crimes, crimes of which the UK 
um, as has an international obligation, of course, to prosecute domestically. Um, this bill, now it's an act, by the way, it creates a triple lock. There is, first of all, an explicit presumption against prosecution of years, even in the event of new evidence emerging. Secondly, there's a requirement for prosecutors to give weight to the battlefield or operational considerations um, at the time. And thirdly, there is the need for the Attorney General um, to approve any prosecution after five years. Initially, this triple lock even applied to torture, war crimes, genocide and crimes against humanity. Um, and of course, as a result, it was subject to serious, serious criticism from a wide variety of sources senior military figures, um, human rights organization, amnesty, redress, liberty, the former attorney, attorney general, Dominic Reeve, and the former director of public prosecutions, um, Bruce Holder, who stated the notion of implementing the presumption against prosecution as currently as drafted at the time is outrageous. So there was a lot of pushback and thank God they've dropped that clause with regard to the international crimes. But it is now uh, sealed and rolled as a sentence. It's, it's, it's an act now. So there is this triple lock in place for um, veterans. Now, why am I explaining all this? Um, because only a year before the introduction of this bill act, Conservative MPs had tabled an urgent question condemning a UK court's rejection to extradite five Rwandans to Rwanda to be tried there for genocide. They expressed anger and dismay over the fact that the UK court, no UK court had yet tried alleged perpetrators of genocide. And the same defense uh, secretary Ben Wallace uh, argued that the United Kingdom under successive governments has been a proud supporter of administrative uh, and administering justice for war crimes around the world in Bosnia or Yugoslavia, Rwanda and other places, but of course not Afghanistan and Iraq, I should mention. So this to me is a fine example of double standard thinking regarding prosecution of others. And indeed, domestic prosecutions of international crimes have often been limited to those of discredited past um, regimes or former regimes, uh, foreigners, Nazis, Yugoslavs, Rwandans. In the words of Maximo, in the words of Maximo Langer, these are locals defendants. Only in a few cases of country resorted to international nationals. Um, and prosecutions of armed service personnel in particular. This should change, and there are signs. That it is changing. I mean, we all probably know about the Brereton report in Australia with regard to um, uh, crimes against civilians uh, in Afghanistan by an elite unit of the Australian Army. Um, and I read this week that the Dutch also um, are going to set up investigations with regard to these crimes because there were apparently some Dutch Marines involved in that too. Um, so, yes, we have to bear this in mind that there is uh, a bit of a blind spot there and um, I think you know when we really want to take our duty seriously under the ICC regime and also as global enforcers of international criminal law we should look at our own. The other thing we should also do is um, ask ourselves who are we not prosecuting? So um, 
And this, this question is particularly per pertinent with regard to those who've been excluded. Um, they are often lower on the hierarchy of perpetrators. Um, I would argue, certainly the cases I know in the Netherlands, their contributions could some be qualified as de minimas, minimal, and uh, some cases even below the threshold of criminal complicity. The mere membership of uh, security forces in Afghanistan can result in exclusion. Same with membership of the Ba'ath Party, even when it was involuntary, and you're very much on the margins, that's it. You know, you can't um, uh, rely on protection. And um, yeah. And I think there's a real need to develop prosecutorial policies around who are we not going to prosecute and what are we going to do with these people um, to ensure that you know we don't have this, this group of people floating around as international outlaws in a legal limbo. Um, we need prosecutorial guidelines, is basically what I'm asking for. What does it mean you know, to be uh, an enemy of mankind? Because that's what we're supposed to focus on, right? In international criminal law. And what is end ending? impunity really means, because you can't prosecute everyone. So we have to develop a policy also around who are we not going to prosecute? What are going to be the main um, um, sort of uh, policies going forward? Now, prosecutorial guidelines can also lead to a system of burden sharing when it comes to exercising universal jurisdiction. A system of universal jurisdiction designation that prompts more states to take up their role as ICL enforcers, allowing states that have now taken up a very activist role to maybe step back. And, and this, by the way, is the last point that I argue before I conclude. Um, there are very few obstacles to exercising universal jurisdiction. The rationale of universal jurisdiction is that crimes should not go unpunished and therefore courts can claim jurisdiction because of universal jurisdiction's nature as each to their own jurisdiction. You know, there can be positive jurisdiction conflicts, overlapping um, conflicts of jurisdiction. Multiple courts can claim universal jurisdiction. And this includes sometimes courts that might not have a very strong link to the case by nationality or local delicti. And Cedric Reinhardt um, refers to these courts as bystander states. I love that term. In practice, many states have adopted um, policy rules that circumscribe the resource of the recourse rather to universal jurisdiction, requiring presence of the accused on the territory, like in the Netherlands, or a link by nationality um, of the victims. And these limitations stem from local national concerns around judicial economy and political interests and point towards customary acceptance um, of a rule or principle of subsidiarity. And Reichardt um, argues that a principle of subsidiarity has developed that requires that bystander states defer to efforts made by other states that have a stronger link to the situation. And um, this principle that he argues is rooted in sovereign equality of states can be seen as part of international law and is embodied in the complementarity principle, the ICC statute. Subsidiarity um, was referred to by the International Court of Justice in the arrest warrant case as a sensible way to avoid the chaos of unbridled universal jurisdiction claims. You can find it in the joint and separate opinions of the judges Higgins, Collins, Bergenthal, paragraph 59. 
Complementarity in the ICC statute constitutes a system of vertical subsidiarity. As such, it can be also a model for horizontal interstate uh, complementarity. Another way to designate universal jurisdiction and propose a system of burden sharing would be by modeling it on subsidiarity in transnational criminal law. There's a number of treaties we can refer to with regard to transfer proceedings, mutual legal assistance. Related but so far unexplored is um, the principle, and this is sort of new. Um, see, sorry, I lost my thread here. Um, but, but, but the proper administration of justice. And this starts with the defendant rather than with the state and its interests. And Bert Swartz, formerly a judge, also uh, no longer with us, of the ICTY, he was one of the first to refer to this principle. Um, and it's basically, it refers to a fundamental right to fair trial and premised on the system of natural justice. Um, proper administration of justice does not necessarily correlate with a strong jurisdictional link to territorial nationality. Um, rather, it, it, it ties to the interests of the defendant. Um, so the best state for that person to be tried can be the state where family lives or where he or she can be reintegrated. And designation of jurisdiction can be based on those interests rather than states' interests. In any event, it is worth thinking. It is worth thinking about um, system of burden sharing, not where we have a few states that are policemen of the world, but where we equally share the burden because we're equally um, bearers of that obligation to enforce international criminal law. I conclude. Um, the increased activity in international crimes prosecutions calls, to my mind, for coordination and collaboration, especially, I would argue, in Europe, where most cases are being investigated and where there's an infrastructure through Eurojust and its genocide network to enable a joined-up system. And um, yes, this requires some states to shift position from no safe haven to being global enforcers. And cutting corners via counter-terrorism legislation and immigration measures is not the way forward. In a world where increasingly the Security Council is a lame duck, states need to step up to the plate. Um, and I think the situation in Syria in many ways has been a sort of a dress rehearsal where we have explored possibilities and we've also run into limitations. And now we can move forward from that having experienced that. Human Rights Watch um, already in 2017 highlighted um, a need for a more comprehensive justice process to address the ongoing, ongoing impunity in Syria and, um, and that jurisdictions should engage as much as possible and to fill the gap left by the United Nations and the Security Council. We should work towards a multi-tiered cross-cutting approach, um, which we will be needing in the long term. In addition, uh, so not just also universal jurisdiction, yes, very much start there, but also move on from there uh, and, and involve other judicial mechanisms. Uh, I saw yesterday chat around a universal civil jurisdiction, maybe there are avenues to be explored there. So that's yet another step um, towards um, enforcing international criminal justice. I could not agree more with that conclusion. Um, with a war also on the borders of Europe, um, possibly an influx at some point of Russian and Ukrainian fighters. 
it seems to me that European countries should stand ready in playing the role of global justice enforcers. And this requires first and foremost uh, developing sound prosecutorial policies. And that requires answering very basic questions that I just put to you, like why do we prosecute safe haven or global forces? And who do we prosecute? Um, what does ending impunity mean? Who are enemies of mankind? Um, the joined up justice project um, that I will kickstart next January aims to answer some of those questions through empirical and doctrinal research, also in Sweden. And I very much look forward to working with you. I cannot wait to get started. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll, we'll open up for questions. Uh, do we have any questions? I have several, but I'm not going to. Any questions uh, from our online participants? You can raise your hand. Well, I can start with a question. Um, uh, you spoke about cumulative charging, whether uh, to prosecute people, let's say, who have committed or allegedly committed crimes in Syria, terrorists, war criminals, or both. And uh, I found it very interesting. I mean, uh, you gave the example of Belgium, where they have a clause which provides that you cannot be convicted for war crimes if you're uh, convicted for terrorism. In Sweden, we don't have such a clause. However, we have such a case in one of the appeal courts, and they ruled that you cannot convict them for both, so they only convicted for terrorism. We were uh, several in academia who thought they were wrong, mm -hmm. uh, but that's how one of our appeal courts did. Uh, so I found uh, very interesting. And in that... Um, when you discussed that that topic, you mentioned that it might be easier to prosecute for terrorism compared to war crimes. And I guess that's true if you have criminalized membership. But in Sweden, we haven't criminalized membership. And then I would argue it's easier to prosecute for war crimes than for uh, terrorists, because war crimes, you just have to prove an access to armed conflict. You don't have to prove some kind of intent to hurt society or anything like that. Now, um, uh, so, so that brings me to 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 my question. Uh, I mean, we're gonna. This is an observation I've made, and I, I want you to ask if if you've made the same observation. Maybe I've made the wrong observation, but my, my observation is that countries that have criminalized terrorist membership, they go for that, and they. Um, they don't do the war crimes investigation because it takes too much resources. While well, as here in Sweden, we don't, they, they, we've never had this option to prosecute for membership. So in order to get these people convicted, you have to investigate what they've actually done. Uh, so uh, could you please elaborate on that? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good point. Um, I think you're right. I think it definitely um, has been more popular to go for terrorism because it's, yeah. But as I understand from this report from Eurojust in 2020, uh, there are green shoots. So it is increasingly that states also prosecute for uh, or do them both and don't just suffice and deal with um, terrorist membership, but also for all kinds of crimes humanity, especially France and Germany, they do this. So um, I live in hope because I do think it's, as those NGOs have also made clear, um, 
it's just a better way of capturing the essence of the wrongdoing if you prosecute for the war crimes. Um, just leaving it at terrorism would be too easy. Dutch courts, however, are not so interested in international crimes in this field. So their terrorism has featured uh, more prominently the charges, and that's just because it's easier, quicker, cheaper. Yeah, and that fits with. I think also how I portrayed the Netherlands just earlier as a no safe haven um, approach. But I agree, yes, but, but there, is, there is change. You, you do see that states now go for both. Yeah. Thank you very much. So we have two questions here from the online uh, participants. So we'll start with Topua and then Brian. And Topua, I don't know if you introduced yourself. So if you want, please introduce yourself. Uh, thank you so much. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, uh, my name is Chupua. Uh, I'm a master student at uh, University of Birmingham, but uh, from Kenya. Uh, my interest is specifically on the international criminal justice, uh, specifically on the issue of war crimes, but just want to ask my question in relation to the struggle <clears throat> within the UN Security Council which plays a very, a very great role in as far as issues of prosecutions of war crimes and all those issues under the Rome Statutes are concerned. And my first question is whether uh, our speaker today believes that uh, well, international criminal justice under the ICC, as well as under the auspices of the UN has a future. And my own, as in hypothesis for this, and this is just a comment is that we've seen a lot of frustration with how the international criminal justice works. And slowly we've seen that the efficacy uh, may be hinged towards regional courts. Uh, and if I say regional courts, for example, uh, we see like how cases in Kenya in the ICC were frustrated at the African Union level and people seeking to say that we want African solutions for African problems. And that to a large extent uh, played a great role in slowing the pace at which cases were prosecuted and also inhibits cooperation uh, of member states and the court. And also we've seen in, in light of the Russian-Ukraine issue, we've seen Western European countries advocating for a more tribunal uh, kind of sorts uh, to try possible war crimes and not really banking on the already established institutions at the international level. And this leads us to a situation where whether we have a really necessary as in institutions and uh, even laws uh, to anchor such regional Supra mechanisms to ensure that even if we don't, for example, secure conviction, we can't hear you very well now. Can still so I can maybe I can stop there for for the rest as well. Thank you. That's a big question, Tofu. Whether there is a future in international criminal justice. Um, so let me um, address what you say about the ICC. Does the ICC um, 
and maybe I, I misinterpreted you, but I think I interpreted you rightly when I say, when I rephrase your question as, does the ICC have a future and, and is it really um, functioning well and, and, and why do we have it? And is it certainly, you know, with regard to also Ukraine, um, when people are talking about setting up new courts, what about the ICC? I think Ukraine is a very specific situation because of the crime of aggression there and that the ICC will not have um, jurisdiction to try that crime. And that has prompted some to look at this possibility of setting up a separate institution. Um, I do think the ICC has a lot to give us in terms of being a, the engine of um, international criminal justice in terms of spurring us on. And the future, as I said, and I started with that, is domestic. I do believe that as much as possible, we, we should try these crimes ourselves. And there's a lot of expertise at the ICC um, that um, states can rely on, can, can go and share. I mean, at the moment, I think there's almost daily ICC investigators engaging with um, Ukrainian investigators to share the expertise they've gained over the years in trying these cases and prosecuting these cases. So there's a lot, I think, uh, to be said for this institution. Now, has it been doing the right thing in terms of focusing on Africa? No, I don't think it has. On the other hand, I think the victims of those crimes have been very pleased with uh, the interest of the IC prosecutor in looking into these situations. Um, but it has taken a very long time and sometimes it's not evolved into an actual case. So um, it has its flaws, for sure. Um, but I think as overall, I would applaud it and it does have a future. And mainly because um, it asks us to carry the can and it can play a role in spurring us on. So I think that's what I'll do in terms of response to your question. Thank you. Uh, I'll now, I'll take two questions at a time. So we'll take Brian and then Pedro, and then I'll hand over uh, the mic to, to uh, Elise. So uh, Brian, please. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Elise. I love hearing you talk. So, and it was a great uh, sketch of the overall landscape of what's happening. You mentioned a couple of times the important role that civil society actors have played in spearheading some of these domestic prosecutions. and. I'm just wondering if you can maybe flag for us some, some downsides uh, to civil society playing this more advanced state light role um, in terms of investigations. I know uh, at a major event, um, Kareem Khan uh, warned about the dangers of over-documentation. And I'm wondering if, um, if this is something that you share um, or if you can see any any other issues, um, fair trial rights or, or other things that may arise? Thank you. And I'll take Pedro's question now. So please, Pedro. Um, yes, hello, thank you. Um, well, um, I have started to study international criminal law very recently, so I I'm sorry if my <laughs> questions are a bit silly, but uh, anyway, so I have basically two, two questions. Uh, first of all, well, I am, um, Professor, you have insisted in that uh, the, the future of uh, international criminal law lies on, on uh, domestic courts. Um, and I was wondering, because I am from Spain, 
So um, some years ago, I think you have mentioned at the beginning of your presentation, uh, the, we used to have like a, a very broad um, law or uh, universal jurisdiction clause. And, but this clause was amended in 2014 or 2015, something like that. And it was amended in an express way after the Spanish, and Spanish, Spanish court issued like an arrest warrant uh, concerning like uh, high rank uh, Chinese uh, officers. And so, yeah, so before that, I, I think the Spanish government was already like uh, being like receiving like pressure uh, by like several powers like China, US, uh, Israel. So then um, for me, it's a bit uh, complicated to understand because um, I am. Um, I, I guess that these pressures are very usual in this in this field. Uh, so for me, it made more sense that uh, I don't know, like in an international like uh, states or international body such as the ICC, would be like more ready to to resist to face this this uh, pressure than uh, individual states. So I would like to hear your reflection on this. And uh, my second question, if this is not too much, um, is this, I, I was wondering what would happen in a case in which, uh, well, let's say we have a country which has like an universal jurisdiction clause that uh, allows it to, to charge uh, its own nationals for, for uh, core crimes or international crimes. So what would happen uh, if, for instance, the, the national uh, was, wouldn't be the, the, the perpetrator, but uh, 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 another kind of actor, a secondary participant. And I was thinking uh, particularly in uh, people involved in uh, um, arms sales, which maybe are more like uh, uh, assistants or other ways of participation. Uh, how, if, if in this situation, like domestic courts could like, uh, uh, prosecute uh, these these uh, these people under uh, this um, kind of a universal jurisdiction clause. Uh, thank you very much. And sorry, I spoke too much. Thank you. Great, great questions, both of you. Oh, Brianne, yours is. Uh, I'm still mulling it over. I'm not sure if I if I I've not actually worked with NGOs. I know you work very closely with PILPG and and. Um, you do these cases, you play a role, I think, in strategic litigation, very important NGO. Um, I can only imagine one of the things that tends to, to be just a general um, sort of uh, coming with the territory is that NGOs will have a single focus. They don't have the sort of the bigger picture. And um, I can imagine that the activism that drives them and makes them so successful and is so important um, has downsides maybe uh, in terms of yeah going for one particular charge um, crime where there can be other charges that are more relevant. I can't really think of an example, but just in general that that I can imagine that that comes with the territory that that's what NGO activism is about because they can get sort of um, completely stuck into one particular case that they do forget. Other interests, and of course, a prosecutor in the national uh, context will always weigh up. You know, what is the damage to um, the community? Is it worth the money? Uh, 
there is a broader set of interests to look at and um, maybe that can also mean that they will decide not to prosecute and that's the problem of it but anyway that's that's my very unsatisfactory answer to a very good question and I am going to look more into this because I find it fascinating I mean I've I've been approached by ECCHR several several times um, with regard to the cases on corporate complicity, and I've always kept it. Uh, and they're doing great work, and they're great people working there. But I just want to keep my hands clean for the moment and see what happens. But they've been really successful in this this case of the French um, French company. Um, but yeah, that's that's one thing. Uh, and but they're very important, by the way. And and this, of course, you know, but maybe in general for. Um, you know, talking to witnesses, evidence on digital means uh, to pass this on. I mean, that they play a huge role in this. So uh, we couldn't do it without them. The um, question about um, putting pressure on um, human rights abusers, states with a bad record, and you mentioned, you know, with regard to Spain, um, the Uyghurs, and um, the attempt to prosecute, um, is it President Xi, I think, at that time in Spain? Um, I think that can sometimes be too much for a single state. And that's indeed, this is also what you alluded to, where an international institution like the ICC probably has more of a role to play. Although even there, I think um, this would be too big to chew, and bearing in mind, of course, the failed attempt to prosecute American servicemen and, uh, and the UK, where we also saw the, the, the fragility in that sense of um, the ICC is not that robust either. But it has, I think, more of a role to play than individual states. I mean, for example, it will be interesting with regard to aggression prosecutions. I mean, you know, will a domestic court deal with that charge? I very much doubt it. It seems to me so political and, uh, and complicated that that's something ideally for an international tribunal or institution. So um, the division of labor is a right one. You allude to corporate complicity. I think indeed, that's exactly what domestic states can do. It's what's happening in France and Sweden. Uh, because of course they tried at the time to um, um, give the ICC the power to try legal persons, to have jurisdiction over legal persons. Funny enough, I think it was France actually that was, um, uh, it France was against it or for it? I don't remember now. Anyway, it was too too controversial because a number of states don't provide for corporate um, or legal personality in that sense. So they felt the ICC could certainly not have that as jurisdiction. But we can do it domestically, and I think it's what we should be doing. In fact, I think it's the most interesting um, mandate that states could take up uh, because these businesses are located in our countries. And, and they so often fuel these conflicts. And many of the, of the cases, certainly at the ICC, if you look at them, it's all about natural resources at the end of the day, all these crimes. I mean, in Tuli region, in DRC, I mean, how many cases have come out of that one? Why? Well, because it's rich, mineral rich. And so I think this is par excellence, I would say, the, um, the mandate for um, domestic states. So thanks for that question, Pedro, it's a good one. Thank you. Uh, so. We have two, I'll take two more questions now. Uh, Sally and Ilva, please. So I had two questions and a comment. Um, one on your, your conclusion, we need prosecutorial 
guideline. It's funny you've managed to identify one good thing coming from Brexit because the Brits being out of that Eurojust system, that might actually be possible now. This yes, that's true. Difficult. Yes, so that's a good thing. Yes. Not <laughs> <laughs> Cherish that thought. Yeah. Um, I really, I find this concept of um, enemies of mankind that you raise, it's fascinating. And I'd love to hear your comments of how this fits with kind of the underlying principles of justice is yeah. presumption of innocence. And we have rehabilitation as a sentencing aim in Article 14 of the ICCPR. And it just, you know, what do we do then? Can you be an enemy of mankind permanently? Or how does that work? It's fascinating. Um, and I was just also struck by um, how, how, how universal can we make this system? Is this becoming more of a European system of universal justice? Because it's it's coming across with quite a colonial background to it. Yes, very much. Um, and you know what is? It, I mean, I know I, there's obviously the cases from the DRC and Central African Republic of you know national prosecutions of the, of of soldiers in those contexts. But you know, as so much is going on within the European system, how can we? we engage the rest of it. As if the global enforcement idea is, I, I totally agree with you, is that should be the model in which we're going forward, but how do we do that on a global level without, without this tainted background to it? Yeah, so um, great questions. With regard to the enemy of mankind, I mean, that's actually the centre of my project. I've been puzzled by that concept for ages. And um, it's just, it's, enigmatic I mean we just don't really know uh, but what comes across very much with um, and I know Brianne will agree with those who've worked on the defense side in these cases that you are indeed regarded as working with the enemy with with you know the bad person evil and um, and actually it was a great experience having worked with um, clients Rwanda tribunal He's an ordinary human being and he was an opportunist, absolutely. And um, I did not agree with him, but uh, he wasn't an enemy of mankind. Um, it's, it's, it's a great way to frame the other. And, um, and you see it also, I was thinking the other day, in all, there are 22 cases we've had in the Netherlands of um, international crimes prosecutions. 18 people have been convicted. None of them have been given um, treatment. It's all prison sentences. There's complete blind spots, also on the side of, I would have thought, a sophisticated justice system in the Netherlands to think about these people as ordinary people that might also need treatment. Mm. Um, it's not there. And um, there's, we're working on a special issue in the Journal of International Criminal Justice with Barbara Hola and some other people on arguing in favour of a, um, a post-trial system where we deal with re-socialisation, re-integration, looking at these people as, you know, people who need that too. And, yeah, you know, it's, it's, we're just starting, which is crazy after having, you know, a uh, system for, for a number of years now. And, and by now, most of them are coming out, you know, all these people who've been tried over the years are coming out. And some of them do still pose a security threat. The Ongwen case is the example. I mean, Ongwen, you know, you could argue my colleague, um, he's a forensic psychologist, um, Blackman, he was an amicus courier in that case to argue in favour of treatment for people like him. Mm. And um, it was completely refused. And he said, well, actually, this will backfire because when he comes out, this guy's dangerous. So he's not been treated. So anyway, this is just all with response to this 
this very important question and it it's it's otherism it's just looking at the other person and then putting him in that box evil and it's concepts of Feinstrafrecht, enemy uh, criminal law which we find in in theories around terrorism um counter-terrorism uh, cases and we also see an icl so there's a lot to grapple with here i mean i would personally argue that um, certainly those people that been excluded because they're close to human rights violators are not enemies of all. And we should think about, and something we'll talk about tomorrow, hopefully, a system of, of resocialization. There's one case in the UK where this has happened. Yeah, where a Rwandan who had been excluded, um, having resided in the UK for about 10 years, I think, was given the opportunity to um, uh, have a settled, to have a status, but then he would have to um, show remorse. So there was this moment where he had to show remorse and there was a sort of uh, reconciliation moment, which I thought was quite interesting. So, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, you're right. Um, universal jurisdiction, the way I certainly talked about it, is very European. I've struggled with this for my project um, because I am looking mainly at Western European, North America um, countries. And it has to do with the fact that most of the people arrive here. So, um, you know, we look at the criminal justice systems through those glasses. And um, there is a lot of unhappiness at the African Union, I know, and maybe this is also something that was alluded to earlier uh, by Topwa. There's a lot of uh, in, yeah, dissatisfaction over the way we look at universal jurisdiction. I'm at a conference next week um where uh, we'll be talking about that about how there should be more inclusion of african perspectives and um i'm not sure really this is my short-sighted criminal law background what that really means but i think we should be open to it and also look at alternative ways of of, of um dealing with and addressing those crimes well not just criminal trials i don't know maybe we can just find other ways so but i was um, thinking actually more of asia and like with yeah. Indonesia and the war on drugs and that crime against humanity potentially of what's going to happen there and you've got China with obviously everything that's going on there and yeah the, and you know, yeah, North Korea is going to yeah. be the permanent black spot and it, it feels like we, we focus so much on what's happening and the bias towards Africa and in that moment then we're also losing sight of sure. other areas yeah. Yeah. but I really yeah. enjoyed this so yeah, no, no. And so I have a PhD student who's from Sri Lanka and she's doing research on universal jurisdiction in, in uh, India, Sri Lanka and uh, Bangladesh and a comparative study. And a lot of it, as I understand it now, is, is based all on British law and, uh, and it's all about uh, terrorism and uh, sedition and um, it's fascinating. Yeah. So, yeah, no conclusive answer to that one. Um, I think those are the questions, yeah. if I address them. Yeah. All right. So, Ilva and then Heavy, please, Ilva. Uh, thanks a lot. This was uh, super interesting. And also hear about this uh, research project from uh, sort of the victim's perspective, as I, as I understand you. And um, I was wondering if, if you will also talking about sort of European perspectives and, and if EU law will also be included. and. Maybe in particular um, the, this EU directive on, on victims' rights and, and how to sort of include that in all of this uh, equation. 
if I may. Yeah. Yes, Kendall, thank you. Yeah. Um, and a huge amount of thanks to you. It's super, super interesting talk. I really, really appreciate it as well. And lots of food for thoughts, and I can't wait for events tomorrow as well. Um, I just wanted to address quickly about the last point you referred to in your presentation, and that was about the burden sharing. Yeah. Which I found super interesting <clears throat> as well, and I really um, echo with you. Um, I'm just wondering whether, because it's burden sharing principle, you can find it in other legal frameworks as well. Um, you don't need to go that far with finding it already in the Review Convention. Uh, we have that principle within the solemn EU aspect as well. Um, so I'm just wondering to have this burden sharing principle and that kind of concept um, and trying to avoid the fact that we don't end up having something in theory that doesn't really implement and integrate into to practice. What do you think is the main thing that we actually need to sort of come on target and make sure that we have that in place in order to make that possible to, to implement? Um, or do you think that it might be kind of a weak spot in the burden sharing aspect as well, um, which will make it very difficult to implement that? In, in practice um, when it comes to prosecuting these international crimes as well. And also whether we find any, that also kind of just reflecting about the general, maybe that doesn't really happen in practice anyway, but the cooperation between states when it comes to investigation and prosecuting these very international court crimes as well. We have that already sort of in place, but can we take any lessons from that in order to sort of just integrate that into the burden sharing principle as well. So whether you can just allow them. Yeah. yeah. Thank you again so much. Yeah. Pleasure. Um, victims. Um, so what exactly did you want me to respond with regard to victims? How they can yeah so how you uh, intend in to integrate the okay. perspective in the research project and EU and how it and it's going to use EU law and yeah, the directive. Yes. Um, so I will very much take into account the. Um, I want to talk to NGOs, basically. I want to talk to these uh, guys who do the strategic lit litigation because they are the, a lot of them talk to victims. And I will not be able to talk to victims directly myself. Uh, but there's definitely part of the research will be around strategic litigation and what victims want. And one of the things that, as I understand at least, is that with regard to um, their plight and their redress, that they want trials that go beyond terrorism charges. They want the fuller picture. So I think that's what I will be focusing on mainly. Like, how are we going to capture these, um, these awful things that's happened to them? How, how does that narrative, how important is it for them that that's addressed? And how does that, that translate to... Um, individual charges. So that will be definitely on the part of the project. I'm not really looking into uh, how trials should be conducted. Should there be a place for victims or not? Um, I think it's super interesting and I, I would argue that there should be. And this is why I think the UK should look at its procedure again. Because I do think there is uh, something to be said for trials, procedures that are specific to these crimes. And so forget a jury, I would say. And, uh, but this is a big deal in England. Um, and, and indeed have uh, more room for victim participation, uh, not just at the sentencing stage, but already during trial. So, but, but that's not part of this project. 
for me, the victims come in when we look at how, what really addresses the wandering. The burden sharing. So the one thing I can do, I mean, this is an idea that I've just been working with for recently. Okay, it's just, it's, it's, it's really come up in talking to um, prosecutors um, in several European countries. One of the things that could be a little bit interesting mini cosmos is the JIT, the Joint Investigation Team in the MH17 case, where Australia, the Netherlands, um, Ukraine, um, sorry, and Malaysia, indeed, they work together and they've sort of very generously given transfer that jurisdiction, their original jurisdiction to the Netherlands and, and how they work together in coordinating, collaborating, in dealing with this, um, this particular attack on that plane is, is an interesting one. So I think uh, what I need to do first is start talking to these people and then take it from there. So my burden sharing idea is, is not to leave it up to those states like Sweden, Germany, that happen to have these broad clause and victim communities but to have a more even spread of, of responsibility. Now, I totally accept that this is quite idealistic, um, but what I certainly want to get out of this project, if, if anything, secret, some answers to prosecutorial policy, the why and the who. I mean, these are so basic, these questions. It's crazy that we're not able to, to answer those questions now, if you think about it, after all those years. You know? um, so, yeah, that's my answer to your question. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, I'm going to close the list now, but mm. we'll take the persons who are on the list. And it's me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I want to connect to the last discussion on burden sharing, because I had a discussion with a colleague who saw your invitation and thought this was very exciting. And uh, we, when we discussed this with burden sharing, because it was mentioned in your invitation, we, we kind of had something in mind, because you describe it then as something positive, idealistic. But it could also uh, be used in a more um, malevolent way. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking about, I mean, following all the atrocities in Syria, uh, many European countries, they wanted to, kind of, to, to move the prosecutions and investigations away from themselves. And uh, I mean, you mentioned transfer of prosecutions, so probably many European countries wanted to do that. So isn't there also a danger with transfer yeah. of prosecutions? I'll hand over now to Miriam because I'm trying to take two persons. I'm not going to make an exception for myself. Miriam, please. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yes. Yep. So thank you very much for the presentation. It was very uh, thought-provoking hearing about the project. And I made uh, this reflection that um, I wrote it down, the question. Uh, so within the global enforcer perspective, um, there can develop two different narratives, I think, and putting the sort of emphasis a bit differently. Um, you can go top down and sort of label it a policing of the world, uh, or you can see it as a bottom up with a strategic litigation, uh, which makes the system sort of available to victims with the help of NGOs uh, on their initiative. So it, it becomes a victim's initiative. But um, do you agree and uh, how, if at all, should these perspectives influence policy on universal jurisdiction? Uh, because um, if, it, if ICL and enforcement comes across as too one-sided, um, it might be framed as, as for instance, neo-colonial. But my impression is that 
no states are proactive in that sense. There is no state proactive enough to warrant that label of policing the world. Um, and instead, I think the case is stronger for the narrative of states passively receiving but not raising barriers to strategic litigation. Uh, but then again, that might have pros and cons that should influence uh, the policy on universal jurisdiction. So, um, yeah, that's the question. Do you see these two different conflicting narratives and, and how should they influence policy? Question, Miriam. Basically, following on from you, Mark. Are we continuing with the questions or am I answering now? You're asking. Okay. Don't ask. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. It's, you're right. Policing the world, maybe it's too strong. What I think, to a certain extent, what Germany is doing with its strategic um, prosecutions is a bit like that. I mean, it comes close. Um, it goes way beyond its national interests, I think. It really is carrying the can for many other states. And um, I do see where you're coming from. I and mean, basically, it's the same what you were saying, Mark, is that, you know, uh, be careful what you wish for, you know. Um, if you're going to start talking about universal jurisdiction, burden sharing, et cetera, maybe some who've until now been sort of, you know, passively consuming, but they might just step back all as, you know, big way. Um, it's a bit like negative complementarity, isn't it? Where um, in, in ICC terms, where those states will say, well, you know, the ICC, you have jurisdiction, you go for it. Um, but then at the domestic level, I would hope that I could make a case uh, and I will have to talk to lots of people. And I'm afraid it is Europe to start with, Eurojust and its network. Um, to really share this idea of you have to comply with the obligation on the ICC statute, you have to prosecute and not just um, extradite or um, leave it up to immigration authorities to, to exclude people. And I, I honestly think what Canada is doing is problematic in terms of its obligations on the ICC. It really is, there's no effort, actively there's no effort in, 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 in you know, investigating these cases. And they say it quite openly, you know, it costs too much money. Um, but that's not enough, you know. So I would hope that we can have a debate around that. And I'm not at all um, naive. I don't think suddenly all these, these countries are going to change into a Germany where they take it that seriously. But it would be nice if they would try at least a little more. And I suppose that's what it all comes down to at the end of the day. If you have a policy, we've got some sort of idea what you want to do, what your obligations are in terms of who to focus on, what to, what to do. Um, with that comes a clearer idea of what you, you must do. So, you know, you can't hide behind this sort of very broad enemy of mankind rhetoric no more. You must spell it out. That's my hope. Miriam, I hope that's also an answer to your question because I do think they are similar. Yes. And... I want to add one thing to uh, Miriam's uh, presentation. She also wrote an article about structural investigation. Excellent. You mentioned that in your presentation, and she wrote it about how it's done in Sweden. So, oh. so she has text on Where it. is it? It's in uh, this it's in volume. Uh, it's in English. Great. If you haven't got it already, I, I will help you get Great. it. Uh, so now I'll turn to uh, Akash and then Mariana. Akash, please. 
thank you, Professor, for the presentation. Uh, we at the Asia Justice Coalition have been looking at the scope and prospects of universal jurisdiction in Asia, especially because when we talk about UJ or ICL, uh, Asia is never in question. So what it leads is impunity gap for the prosecutor. Sorry, I, I managed to unmute you. Please, can you unmute, <laughs> you unmute please? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Sorry, it was my so what it leads. Yeah, so what it leads to is atrocity, uh, like beauty gap in atrocity crimes for places like Afghanistan and Myanmar. And thank you, Sally, for raising that point as well. And it is important to note that many of these perpetrators move within the region, not just to evade responsibility, but also for the, re for the reasons of proximity. So my question to you, Professor, is when you talk about prosecutorial policy, would it be regional or international in focus? I'm asking this to understand the concerns with spearheading the UJ project, and especially when we factor in concerns of cumulative charging with terrorism and you know atrocity crimes, and how that might affect the question of why of your project. Thank you. Akash, can you, could you explain a little bit more what you meant with proximity? What, what, what I didn't understand. What I meant was the concerns regarding the UJ project, if you are going to spearhead that with the prosecutorial policy. So will that prosecutorial policy that might come out of your project will be regionally focused or internationally? Um, so the project focuses on eight countries and um, I'm afraid it's very global north. Uh, it's because it's following the migration flows and um, because the infrastructure in Europe allows me also to engage with stakeholders here and it will be easier to um, think about prosecutorial policies. However, as I already said, I have, um, I'm supervising this project here and it just started in Asia and it's a complete blind spot uh, indeed in international criminal justice generally, um, I'm increasingly finding out. So, I will definitely look into that. I would never propose a universal jurisdiction agenda um, based on Europe as one for the whole of the world. <laughs> okay, so I will definitely, that's the disclaimer already I'm making, but the project itself will not be focusing on Asia. So uh, yeah, I, I think I'd like to hear more about the Asian perspective as, as already just talked about earlier. So um I'm completely new to this, I'll be honest. Yeah, I was asking this to understand the question of why uh, of your project is yeah. whether the concerns for the procedural safeguards might also you know, reflect on this question of prosecutorial policy, uh, indirect effect of figuring out the selective justice and the repercussions of human rights violation within the UJ prosecutions. Oh, I'm not sure I really understand your question. I don't think I, I've thought about it that way in terms of procedural guarantees or effects. Give me an example. What are you thinking of? And then I can comment. Right. So I was thinking of, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, but thankfully, oh, so unfortunately, it's looking at Asia, but the procedural safeguards regarding death penalty and the fair trial concerns. So when we moot the question of who to prosecute within this project, uh, will uh, and keeping in mind the cumulative charging that we're increasingly seeing with terrorism, so will that also affect the you know answer of who to prosecute? How could that? I mean, can you just explain that? 
because I don't really get that. Because if you're going to push for UJ project, you know, taking in account of cumulative charging as well, uh, the concerns of human rights uh, violations are real. So then are we going to factor in and saying that, okay, because of the real concerns of human rights violation, we are going to take out the terrorism angle from the you know UJ project that we are going to push forward. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things that Benori, um, my PhD student, is looking into Sri Lanka and the, the uh, international crimes prosecution. But of course, that brings in the, the, the Tamils, the LTTE, and the terrorism charges. And um, I think that we have to have a, a complete open um, approach to that. Uh, I don't want to throw anything out to begin with. I mean, if you are saying that cumulative charging, uh, looking into that is is bad or is good because it, it affects, you know, um, your scope of research and you might gloss over certain things, that's a bad thing. But I don't know at the moment where we stand because we just started and it seems to me the best to do is keep very inclusive, very open and take it from there. I mean... As I understand, yeah, it's mainly terrorism we're looking at at the moment. And if they dress up international crimes prosecutions as terrorism, well, then we look at terrorism. That's fine. I just want to know um, what happens at the national level and how what we would probably, in, in other countries, prosecute as war crimes, how that addresses woes in the countries in Sri Lanka, for example, if it's terrorism, how that differs or not. Um, I think it's good to pierce through the labels and. Um, not get too hung up on it. So I'm totally open to it, sort of um, a more inclusive approach per region, not have one model, the European model, and then transplant that on Asia. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you, Professor. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll move on now, Mariana, and then Christopher. Please, yes. Mariana. Thank you for your presentation. It's very interesting and it's very quite relevant to my topic. And so the thing is, we have two group of people, like ISIS fighters, that they are citizens, and then we have some like people coming here applying for asylum. Have you noticed any difference in like when we pursue these people? Have you noticed any difference in the sentences? Like for example, as citizens, do like citizenship deprivation? This is what I'm interested in, uh, because like in the UK, they make it simple for them; they don't need to pursue anyone. We don't want to bag, so we don't need to start any case here. It's a way like to save money also. And but when you receive like when people coming back from abroad and they are sitting here, is it like they deprive them when they sentence? And is it different between countries or how is it? You know, I don't know because I've not looked into the difference, but it would be really interesting to look just to, to look into that. I definitely um think that there is that bias and the UK position, as you say, is so clear. I mean, um, blatantly obvious that they look at these people differently. Um, so the interesting, only thing I can, I can respond uh, in terms of your question is that Germany has expressed very clearly that they will do both. So they will prosecute Syrians coming back who are nationals on the basis of the active nationality principle. And they prosecute those who are foreigners on, on the basis of universal jurisdiction, all towards the same goal, ending impunity for crimes in Syria. So there, there does not seem to be a difference, at least at the front of the process. I don't know how it is at the back in terms of what the sentences are. That would be really interesting to look at. But it's interesting, right, that Germany really makes it very clear that no, 
this is our mandate and we have to look at both, also our own citizens. Yeah, but as I remember, like Germany, they have amended their legislation, like Nationality Act, to make it possible yeah. to, to deprive people, but that will not be active for those who have participated in this, like criminal wars before, like the law start in practice. We can't implement the law retroactively. This is what, as I yes. remember from. Yes, so, true. Yeah. true, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, but that's unfortunately very often the case with international crimes prosecutions that your legislation is not up to speed, yeah. you know, and um, there are different ways of dealing with that. We've, we've had these issues as well. I think that's quite irrespective of, of whether it's foreigner or not, uh, but it does show the limitations. It's much easier generally when it's nationals. I mean, there is otherism going on at every level, okay? And um, one of the things I'm really interested in, in is, is with this all, this link of, Refugee exclusion to international criminal justice is that these people already are two steps behind, you know, when they when they apply for refugee and asylum status. And and I really don't, I mean, definitely compared to that case in the Netherlands with that guy who this Dutch guy who'd gone to Syria to fight alongside YPG, the way we dealt with that guy and how we deal with who's coming to the Netherlands, I think it's it's it makes it so clear. Thank you. So I'll take the next question now from Christopher, please. Um, okay, thank you very much, uh, Elisa, for your talk. Uh, my question um, deals with uh, the problem of navies in Edam. So I wonder if you would be looking at that, because uh, that may be a real problem when there are multiple um, states. Um, which can uh, exercise universal jurisdiction. And in particular, looking at the development of the concept of navies in Edom is uh, going to the direction that uh, you are only, not only going to preclude prosecution of the same offense, but um, subsequent prosecution would uh, be precluded for uh, similar offenses based on the same acts or even um, or even similar acts or, or things that are connected to, to the facts of the offence. So that might be a, a problem. Um, and it probably would put um, enormous pressure on the first state prosecuting those crimes, because if you uh, do it wrong, um, you may actually preclude um, prosecution by uh, some other states in, at some time in the future. Thank you. Great question, Christopher. Yeah, um, I will not be look, looking into that for this project. I have a PhD student in the UK who looks into this. Um, it's a huge problem. And even the ICC is not doing anything to prevent subsequent prosecutions. Um, the case of Dewey, um, for example, who uh, was tried, and who's acquitted, who was it then? It was maybe Katanga. Katanga? who was convicted by the ICC, went back and was subsequently prosecuted the ICC. It has this provision, Article 108, I think, where it says something about, um, gosh, what is it now? I don't have it. it it's, it's up to the ICC, I think, to decide whether that's agreeable or not for the ICC when sending someone back, um, whether they can be prosecuted again. And, and there's a very um, weak, Approach of the ICC towards that. So they basically allow it. Um, it depends on the state system. The Netherlands, for example, will accept any case that's been tried by a foreign court, then maybe it's an EDM apply. So there's protection uh, against double jeopardy. Um, 
but it's very different in other countries. They don't provide for that, and that's a huge issue. As part of that symposium that I just mentioned for the Journal of International Criminal Justice, um, we're also looking into this. Um, and I think one of the articles is about um, post-trial justice, what to do with these people. Can they indeed be, can there be that sort of cycle of prosecution forever? And as you say, I mean, one event can be multiple crimes. So in theory, you know, you can be prosecuted again and again, and it will not actually be near this need and protection because it's not an obstacle. You could argue, I'm not sure this is persuasive, that you take a very specific approach an interpretation to Navis and Edem, you, you look at the event and you, you have a broader reading of what it means, of the wrongdoing means. Um, in other words, enabling uh, double jeopardy protection to be broader than it would be, for example, in a national ordinary crimes case. But this is a problem and there is no solution. And it's, again, as with uh, the lack of treatment, resocialization, it's a blind spot for the international justice community and um, we're only starting to talk about it now. I will not solve this, I'm afraid. I really won't, but um, we need to. Thank you very much. So that was the end of the list for the Q&A and uh, also the, the end of this uh, session. So uh, thanks to all the participants and especially big thank you to you, Elise, for introducing the topic and taking all the questions. So if we can give her a hand. So thank you. And uh, we have an event tomorrow. We have more events later in October and November with skills. So just uh, keep a look out on our mailing list or also social media. So you're welcome to join us again. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Hi, thanks for the great questions. Great stuff.